Welcome to the EEO Studio, a podcast produced by DCI Consulting Group. This is Kelly Wilson, your host for today's podcast, and joining me today as co-host is Rosemary Cox. Hi there, everyone. We are now in season one of the podcast and have developed an all-star cast of speakers on workplace civility moving forward together. This episode features Alexis Roniker, who will be talking to us today from a legal perspective on harassment in the workplace the birth and impact of the Me Too movement, and how to aspire for a harassment-free environment. Rosemary and I were very lucky to hear Alexa speak at one of DCI's events recently, where she introduced the idea of workplace civility training as a means to help prevent um, harassment in the workplace. So as soon as she finished up her presentation at our event, uh, we went running out the door to catch her and uh, try to invite her onto this podcast, uh, given, given the relevance of the topic. So we are very thankful to have to have her accept and join us today. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to get to speak with you and Rosemary and to uh, talk about this great issue. And we appreciate it. Yeah, we have a lot of content to cover and we have a lot of questions we're burning to ask you. So I guess before we get into the, the content of um, the podcast today, do you mind giving a little bit more background uh, about yourself? Absolutely. So I am a partner at the law firm Katz, Marshall and Banks. We're an employee side law firm. Uh, it means that we represent employees who have discrimination, whistleblower or employment claims uh, against their employers primarily. One of my core areas of practice is representing clients with sexual harassment claims. Uh, for example, in the past year, I've represented uh, individuals from C-suite level executives to mid-level employees to blue-collar and low-income clients, all with sexual harassment uh, claims. And so I've got, I really see the breadth of this issue that uh, the nation's been grappling with for you know, over a year now. And I think with that, if if you don't mind just sharing a little bit more about the kind of the birth of the Me Too movement and how it's impacted um, organizations, I think that would be a great place to start. So, you know, it's only been a little over a year, but sometimes it can uh, take some, you know, dust off the memory of how the, how we got to where we are today. And, it, you know, really the Me Too movement was birthed within a few days after the New York Times and the New Yorker ran uh, their exposés on Harvey Weinstein and his decades of alleged assault and harassment of women in the in in entertainment industry. You know, that wasn't the first of a, you know, big name individual who had such allegations against them, but for a variety of reasons that I think will be, you know, seen academic and uh, popular discourse over for a long time, but for a variety of reasons, um, it created a deluge of harassment allegations and claims against other primarily male high-profile individuals. And unlike other occasions, you know, a substantial amount of those individuals actually had um, real repercussions, um, you know, whether it was losing their jobs, losing um, business opportunities, uh, other types of opportunities. Now, uh, that was 
happened very intensely over 2000 and final few months of 2017, early 2018. Things slowed down um, as 2018 went on, but it didn't stop, which I think surprised a lot of people. A lot of people thought that, um, you know, there might be a few months of this high profile um, men being accused, primarily men, I should say. Um, but it went on in the summer. There was a huge expose on Les Moonves of CBS, who um, shortly thereafter, a few months after an investigation, um, was forced out of the company. So, you know, there was continuing to be real repercussions, um, a lot of it motivated or created from uh, investigative journalism and also of just women coming forward uh, independently, sometimes over social media. And then um, the kind of the capstone of the Me Too movement year was the Kavanaugh confirmation, Dr. Blasey Ford um, events that took place in this past fall of 2018. Um, subsequent to his confirmation hearings and vote, there was the uh, hashtag why I didn't report moment, and that was a response to, and you know, not just this happened to me, but why women, primarily women, although also men, explaining why they didn't report in a timely manner the sexual assault or harassment that they experienced, which was a new manifestation of the national conversation. And even most recently, um, there's finally been uh, media that Congress is going to, it's on the precipice of passing a bill to reform their, the system that uh, regulates, you know, their um, legal obligations for sexual harassment. So, you know, Me Too, while it's not in the fervor of the late 2017, early 2018 timeframe, it's still very much happening throughout the country. And I think it's still very much being discussed amongst people. It's certainly being discussed amongst the workforce um, professionals, whether it's HR, plaintiff and management side attorneys that I interact with on a daily basis. Do you think that it's helped bring forward some more, uh, you know, complaints and cases for, for, for yourself? Do you think it gave empowered women to kind of step up and step forward with information, especially given, you know, the uh, Alyssa Milano tweets and everything on, on the Me Too movement? I, I really do think it made a difference. You know, you, I personally in my practice had seen, you know, initially actually a lot of the contact that we got were from what we call time, you know, women with time barred claims, you know, had been the harassment had happened or the repercussions had happened um, years in the past, but they still wanted to, you know, come forward, see if there was some way that they could um, register what happened to them or if they're find out if there was any legal recourse. And that was really initially in the beginning. But as this last year has gone on, there, you know, there's just been a continual flow of people coming forward with wanting to pursue claims. And I know my um, my experiences are are in conjunction or, you know, mirror what the EEOC is reporting. And the, in October, they released their early uh, assessment of their numbers, and they say that charges for sexual harassment had increased 12% um, 
Um, and, you know, the EEOC had also increased the number of sexual harassment lawsuits it had been filing by 50%. So I do think that there, there's been a change in how comfortable people feel coming forward. And I think also how responsive some employers are being when people come forward. Are you seeing any kind of any policy changes or more policies that are that companies are starting to come up with because of all of this, or is it kind of status quo in the company? Um, you know, I don't that I have not yet had clients who have come to me and said, you know, in response to me too, this is what I saw happen at my company because just of the position I'm at, right, where folks are coming to me. I have actually heard, now that we're talking about it, a couple of times someone has said, you know, and then they release their new handbook or, you know, they, we had a training in the summer of 2018. But I I haven't yet had um, had much interface in that. But now that also could be that those those companies that are taking those kind of proactive steps aren't having people come to plaintiff-side lawyers because they're yeah. taking those proactive <laughs> steps. Um, yeah, so I'm not necessarily in the best uh, vantage point for for seeing the um, the proactive, effective steps that uh, you know, a responsive employer might be taking. And you're not necessarily seeing a slowdown either. It's just kind of been steady for you. Of cases? Yeah, people coming forward. I I do not think that there has been a slowdown. No, I actually think that um this kind of that there has been an empowerment of individuals no longer discounting what they have experienced and minimizing the conduct and instead there's definitely people reaching out. And sometimes that means they reach out to me, we have a consultation. You know, I talk to them about what the legal standard for sexual harassment is. I talk to them about what their options are. They decide, you know, they make some decisions and the employer may never know they reached out. They may just know that they, this person's internally reporting sexual harassment. Um, but I think that the Me Too movement has really empowered people to say, maybe I should speak with a lawyer about this instead of just keeping my head down to, or leaving, leaving my employer because I'm too afraid to report. And given that you just mentioned legal standards, is there something that you can share with our listeners about uh, the legal standards of harassment in the workplace? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Over this past year, I've talked a lot with, you know, talked a lot with other lawyers, but also talked a lot with lay people about sexual harassment. And it's become very clear uh, that, you know, what people think of as appropriate and inappropriate conduct at work does not map to necessarily to the legal definition of what sexual harassment is. Um, you know, legally speaking, the standard for sexual harassment is pretty high. It's much higher than I think what most of us think is appropriate in the workplace. And um and what a plaintiff would have to show to show or to make a legal claim for sexual harassment is that they have to show that the harassment was because of sex, that the harassment was unwelcome, that their harassment was sufficiently severe or pervasive to alter the terms and condition of the victim's employment, and that there is some basis for imputing liability to the employer. 
So um, that's a big mouthful, and there's a lot of like different legal sub pieces in there. But I think what r surprises people when they, you know, dig in deep about what a legal case for sexual harassment is, is the what courts have in the past required the conduct to be relatively severe and pervasive compared to what people think would be acceptable in the workplace. Um, you know, a single incident of sexual assault would likely meet that standard, but it's more of the when how how smaller conduct that might build up over time, um, how, how pervasive does that have to be to change the terms and conditions of employment? And it's a very fact-intensive inquiry, and um, and it leaves a lot of gray. And so when I say what a legal case is, like it's definitely I don't mean to intimate that that is anything that doesn't meet that standard should be acceptable in the workplace. Right. I just mean that that it may not be actionable, but good workplaces see that as the, you know, the floor that they never want to get near. Right. Like, why do you want to be stuck in this environment where you're debating? Well, was that grab and that comment and that inappropriate email enough to create liability for us? Well, I don't know if that quite meets the pervasive standard. Like, you don't, you don't want to be in that kind of analysis, right? <laughs> Just like employees don't want to have to be thinking about that. And I think when we talk about civility in the workplace, um, and for example, the EEOC's recommendation about you know, stressing and training on civility is if you create an expectation that is, you know, so much above that really pretty far down floor of conduct, you're not going to get to a place where you're having to debate, you know, how many inappropriate texts make something legally actionable. Rosemary, before I go, did you have anything? No, I was, I was just uh, thinking about that, that's a lot of information to take in. So I was just pondering all of the pieces. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, and I'm I, happy and to I, unpack that, uh, you know, talk more about the different legal pieces. Yeah, I was I was debating whether we should unpack that more or whether we should dive into kind of what some, you know, how a company communicates to its employees, you know, how to go about um, like what a good process is for employees to come forward with information like that and when it's appropriate to come forward. But if you would like to unpack it first, um, that, that might make sense. Sure. Well, let me just, you know, we've, I talked about the severe and pervasive prong because that is the part that often surprises individuals and lay people as to what's legally required. But, you know, the other two prongs that are, about what constitutes sexual harassment, the because of sex. What's really important to know about the because of sex is uh, it's not, it doesn't have to be a romantic or sexual overture. What is more broadly referred to as gender harassment, negative things said, you know, you can think of it as um, it's both come ons and put downs count as um, because of sex. So if someone is saying really negative things about uh, employees because they're women, that would also count as because of sex. Um, 
And then the unwelcome prong is also pretty nuanced and not necessarily what a layperson would understand that to mean. For conduct to be unwelcome, it does not have to be, um, you know, forced. Um, the, the victim does not have to physically resist. Coercive conduct is also unwelcome. So if a person uses their power to, you know, to make it so that the, the victim feels like they have to um, they have no other option but to engage in conduct that would still be unwelcome, even though there wasn't a sexual assault involved. Do you often see um, I, I'm a, a harassment other than just men versus women? Um, are you seeing much, you know, same sex or even women harassing men, or is it 99% of the time it's men harassing women? No, same-sex harassment for has uh, definitely been something that we consistently see at a I mean, at a level lower level of proportion than um, you know opposite-sex harassment, uh, but the vast majority of the harassment does tend to be a male harasser. But I, you know, we have certainly represented men and women who have been harassed by women. It is much less common. It, it, it's the exception rather than the rule, but I, you know, certainly it happens. I mean, sexual harassment, harassment in general is about power. And so, you know, women aren't immune to the use of this abuse of power. Are you seeing anything or hearing anything on your side in, in the government where they're trying to help with any of this? Um, I haven't heard of any like new laws. I know the EEOC is always trying to, to do things, but are you hearing anything on your side that might slow any of this down? I'm definitely hearing about legislators, you know, congressional members, senators who are thinking a lot and, you know, drafting legislation to, you know, re revise our anti-discrimination laws, update them, create incentives for um, thinking of creating preventative programs, really incentivizing, you know, prevention versus just, I mean, obviously you have to, f there are things to be fixed about, you know, laws that are 30 years old and workplaces that have changed and whatnot, and, you know, the law needs to be updated for that. Um, but seeing the value of incentivizing prevention. Uh, I've definitely heard that. And, you know, the EEOC is doing great work on, you know, for example, creating trainings and, you know, providing trainings for small businesses that may be not able to afford, you know, hiring um, big law firms or HR trainers or whatnot. So th I think that there is a lot of thought going on in response to the Me Too movement. Um, but it, I don't know that it's percolated out into the national consciousness yet because I think that it's people are trying to be thoughtful about what will work and not work and instead of just being reactionary. What I would really like to know about, and I think you touched on it at our event that we last heard you speak at, were some of the costs to employees and employers when sexual harassment happens in the workplace, and potentially leading into kind of the implications of, of it. 
uh, and not, not having prevention in place. So the, there's the obvious cost that doesn't take too much you know, thinking of. It costs a lot to hire attorneys, and it costs money to settle these claims, and it costs money to pay the judgments if you don't settle them. Uh, and those are the obvious ones, right? And those are the ones that you can, you know, as a business, quantify quite easily and decide whether or not, you know, they're sufficient. But what tends to get ignored more up in you know, prior to this time frame by some businesses are the indirect costs. And these are things such as the costs of absent employees and turnover and low productivity. You know, I think it's worth diving into those a little bit because, you know, when someone's experiencing sexual harassment, it's a very psychologically uh, challenging time. And I see this a lot with my clients when, you know, they've come to me and they've had to take, you know, take days off. Sometimes they've had to take FMLA leave to deal with the fact that they're having psychological and even physical manifestations of that stress. Uh, you see turnover, not just in the individuals who are being sexually harassed, but the people around them, you know, it's not a good work environment. Uh, people don't want to work around that. And so you lose the talent that the ability to retain talent, which, you know, is, you know, in most industries, that's going to be a real cost. And then low productivity, even if folks are showing up and not leaving, it's very hard to stay focused. You know, if you're dealing with um, a harassment situation, you know, sometimes every email has to be you know, rewritten and rethought, and instead of two minutes, it takes 10 minutes. And, you know, those costs add up, and they're not seen and easily quantifiable. The other piece, uh, which is becoming much more obvious now, is the reputational damage. You know, the media is scrutinizing companies about this. Um, you know, I think most recently I saw a huge exe about, you know, Under Armour and, you know, I just go, you know, can go back and back and back and see like companies that are, you know, the media is coming out with stories about how they haven't handled sexual harassment issues well. And, you know, that sometimes loses losses of sales, losses of advertising in the entertainment industry. So those are some, you know, indirect costs that really can add up. So once a company, I guess I'm thinking about um, what would you recommend that companies do? I mean, are there proactive things they can do to reduce this risk? Or um, I guess I'm trying to think of think of of the of moving on. How do we move on, and how do companies become proactive rather than reactive? Right. So I think that assessing whether your company has risk factors. And some of these risk factors that have been identified are if you have isolated work spaces, you know, if there is a decentral isolated or decentralized workplace. For example, in the hospitality industry, um, employees in hotels were face a and I'm sure continue to face a lot of um, sexual harassment and sexual assault issues because, for example, uh, clean, people who are cleaning the rooms are going into rooms by themselves. 
Um, and there, there was, you know, the EEOC had identified that as an industry with particular problems due to the isolation. And, you know, an example of companies addressing this proactively, uh, five hotel brands came out and said they're now going to provide their staff with panic buttons so that they're addressing the isolated workplace issue. Um, so another risk factor is heavy reliance on consumer service client satisfaction. And this goes everywhere from servers to, you know, quite frankly, salespeople. And even I see this with attorney clients, you know, if they, if, if your model is the customer, you know, dictates the business and your interaction with them, it makes a person particularly in, in a difficult spot if they're facing harassment from that customer. Uh, alcohol consumption, if that's a frequent thing at, in the workplace, which seems, you know, you might be like, oh, what is it like? It's not that common, but, you know, we see, you know, when they're client dinners, when there's team dinners, when at conferences, so the conferences where there's both a lot of alcohol consumption and results in people being outside of the workplace, so they kind of let down some of their more professional uh barriers and just workplaces that aren't don't have a civil a norm of civility are also uh, a risk factor and then lack of workplace diversity if if you have a pretty homogeneous populate work population it can uh, breed a lack of sensitivity and knowledge about what conduct may be offensive to people who aren't part of that um homogeneous group. So those are some of the risk factors that, you know, you could, as an employer, look to see, are these things that we have? And if you do identify them, obviously, I mentioned the hospitality industry example of a proactive way. But, um, you know, if you know that there is alcohol consumption that are at events, you know, taking a proactive look and saying, what are best practices uh, that have been shown to uh, you know, address some of the situations that are minimize problems with alcohol consumption and and just being proactive and looking at those risk factors and seeing what has been shown to work to counteract those instead of just assuming that you don't have a problem. I'm just thinking back, it's a little out of out of place, but I'm thinking back to an earlier comment that you mentioned about potentially having more um, employees feel empowered and speaking up since the Me Too. What have you um, seen to be the case as to why uh, women or men have not really stepped forward? And what, what, ha what has been some of those underlying concerns as to not providing that information to their employer? In the workplace, it really is a fear of retaliation. You know, what I think is important to understand, and employers don't necessarily necessarily always get this, they say, well, there's, we've never retaliated against someone. Why would this person think that we would retaliate? And there is a cultural understanding that when you report something like sexual harassment, that you are risking yourself. And so even if an employee hasn't seen it specifically at her or his workplace, this very keen cultural awareness about the prevalence of retaliation already creates a basis of fear. 
Then if you are in a workplace where these issues haven't been taken very seriously or as is actually quite frequent, a rain, maybe they're taken seriously except in the instance of rainmakers or high-level executives, you know, that information becomes very well known and then individuals are even less likely to come forward. Additionally, it's for people who are faced sexual harassment, it's incredibly disempowering and psychologically traumatizing. And sometimes it's, you know, more than they're able to do at the time. And it's not until they leave the workplace that they feel empowered to come forward. Thank you. I, I think that's helpful to just kind of hear hear some of the, the fears that employees might be having um, before we can get into that kind of proactive space of what, what can we as the employer do to make a more inclusive environment and to allow them to come forward without fear of retaliation. So we appreciate you going and through I think, that. Yeah, and I think that in in respect to that, one other piece is particularly in the more serious and, you know, potentially criminal type of harassment, the assaults, the really um, challenging, you know, ones. It's very embarrassing for many victims. Uh, you know, one of a typical response to someone who has been assaulted is blaming themselves. And so if the, you know, if there aren't obvious safe spaces to go where an employee may, you know, if they have to go to their direct supervisor or go, what I often see is, you know, a woman only has an option of going to a man to report this and she's just not willing to talk about having been, you know, sexually assaulted to a man at that time. Uh, Alexis, thank you so much for sharing all this information. I know you touched on some of the EEOC's efforts around civility and, and uh, civility workplace training. Is there anything more you can share about um, that initiative or anything that you're seeing with companies taking that on, maybe post-litigation? I have not seen anything particular about companies taking on that issue post-litigation. I think I've seen a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, ever since the EEOC in their 2016 uh, report on sexual harassment cited this as a potential avenue for effectively preventing harassment. There's been a lot of discussion. I think it got escalated with the Me Too movement. So I've been seeing a lot of discussion about what such training would have. For example, discussions about the importance of defining workplace norms, um, you know, simple things down to we greet each other when we first, you know, pass by each other in the hall. Or, you know, there's an expectation that an email will be responded to um, in some manner. And it's going to be different for different workforces, but a, you know, idea of like a communal norm definition. And then what I think is really important, which is teaching skills of civility and not just, you know, what's a nice way to say hello, but when you're in an emotionally charged situation, how, how can you diffuse that? How can you, you know, recognize that this is a, you know, emotionally charged situation, um, and still 
make people feel included or non-threatened by that. And those skills are, you know, those, some people come to them relatively naturally, or maybe they learned them in other uh, environments, but also other people have been taught the opposite. You know, I've, I've read a lot about, you know, hospitals, for example, and and doctors aren't necessarily taught civility as a as a key uh, important skill for getting things done, and then discussions about um, efforts to change that priority and providing teaching skills. Um, you know, that it's at times derisively called charm school, but I think that. Um, when it's elevated to something that's being discussed and talked about, it's important. One thing I will say, I've also seen discussions about, um, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Civility rules and civility policies can run afoul of the National Labor Relations Act. And so uh, employers need to implement policies and do discussions carefully and they need to think not just of their, you know, EEO obligations, but, uh, you know, the panoply of labor and employment law. And so talking to professionals, I think, is really important because you might be doing the right thing by way of trying to create a less, less harassment and a more respectful environment and then run afoul of labor regulations and laws. I think that's really helpful, and I, I, you know, we've seen some recent uptick of, of um, like, information being shared on that topic, so I think we might be able to dive into that a little bit at a future podcast, but um, I think those are really good takeaways. I think with that, we're, we're kind of running up on uh, the end of, of what we would typically have for our podcast. Um, you know, as we wrap up this podcast, I just want to give you the opportunity to share any other final thoughts to our uh, listening audience on this topic? I think that when it comes to harassment, it's at some point become a little trite, but, you know, the culture is really set at the top. And if leaders engage with their employees civilly and in a respectful way and then hold their employees to the expectation that they will do so. They, I think that that can go a long way to making people feel empowered to come forward because it's outside of the employer's cultural norm. And I think that is a really a, a way to affirmatively try to prevent harassment. It won't necessarily prevent all harassment, but you hopefully will avoid as an employer some of the um, some cases. And I think that you also, you know, increase productivity and all of those other soft measures that when people are uh, feeling disempowered and un not respected in the workplace. Um, happen. So I think it's a win-win for an employer. You hopefully reduce liability and you increase employee morale overall. But I think in talking about, you know, whether the effect of Me Too and the legal standard for sexual harassment, something that I think is an interesting development is that already we're seeing courts acknowledging the movement and and at least one court has, in a footnote, uh, in reversing a lower court, said, you know, the 
as Me Too has shown us, these are very fact-intensive cases and something, you know, reasonableness is something that we have to evaluate. And I think that that's really telling because while the standard for sexual harassment is challenging, I think that as our national view of what is and isn't severe or pervasive and what does and doesn't alter uh, terms and condition of work will evolve because of this discussion. And I think that we're already seeing the very beginning of that evolution come forward in court cases. So it's something that, you know, even that employers are going to have to keep in mind that, you know, it may it may not stay quite as hard to prove a legal um, case of sexual harassment. And so it's even more reason to focus on really keenly preventing anything that even could be in that realm. Interesting if the courts turned that way. Um, that would be really good because it's. I, I think people, some people still don't come forward because they're thinking this is really hard to prove and how am I going to win and you know how how will I ever be able to prove that this happened? Um, so it'd be nice if those cha- that changed a little bit. Yeah, and I think that one of the you know, and I hate to focus on the fact that you know sexual harassment is a high standard. Um, because of the very fact that people might feel disempowered to come forward. I think what's really interesting and important for people to know, uh, especially as they consider whether or not to come forward, is while sexual harassment might be a high standard, courts have traditionally been very cognizant of retaliation claims. And so even, you know, they want to protect the space of reporting. So, you know, you don't have to know that you have a legal case for sexual harassment to come to your employer and alert them to the fact that something's going on that's making you feel uncomfortable. Um, and that, you know, that protection of for people from retaliation is critical for sexual harassment law, for the whole structure of it to work. And courts have not always, but very, you know, they've been much more favorable for retaliation claims because of that. Those are some great final thoughts. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing those. And with that, I guess uh, we're at the conclusion of our podcast. Thank you for joining us today and for the great conversation on this topic. Um, uh, Please tune in for our next EEO Studio podcast. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about DCI Consulting Group, please go to our website at www.dciconsult.com.